Jerusalem. And one evening he got up and he went on to the roof of the palace and he was walking around looking at the city and he spotted this girl bathing. And so he sent to find out who she was. And they said, isn't this Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the Hethite? And so David sent for Bathsheba and she came to the palace and he slept with her. And then he sent her back home. A little while later, Bathsheba sent a message to David saying, I am pregnant. So David, he sent a message out to the armies of Israel. And he sent it to Joab, the leader of the army. And he said, send to me Uriah the Hethite. And so Uriah comes back from the battle to Jerusalem. And he comes to David and David asks him about how the battle's going, how the troops are doing, how Joab is. And he gets the full report of everything from Uriah. And he says, now Uriah, go home and relax. But Uriah, he didn't go home. That night he went and he slept at the door of the palace with the other servants of the king. When David found out that Uriah had not gone home, he called Uriah and he was like, what are you doing? Why did you not go home? Uriah was like, the troops of Israel... My master Joab, the ark of God is out at battle. How could I possibly go home and wash my feet and relax and sleep with my wife? I swear I will never do such a thing. David didn't know what to do. He's like, stay another day and then I'll send you back out to battle. So the next day David brings Uriah in and he gets him drunk. He's just pushing wine and beer and everything else on Uriah. Oh, oh, have another one, have another one. And Uriah gets drunk. And that night, he goes down and he sleeps on his cot there outside of the palace. So the next morning, David, he writes a letter. And in the letter, he says to Joab, the leader of the armies, he said, go and attack the city And where the point of the fiercest battle is, put Uriah there. And then when the battle gets heavy, have the armies pull back. But leave Uriah there. He writes this letter, he seals it, he hands it to Uriah and says, deliver this back to Joab. And Uriah goes out. Joab reads the letter, does exactly as the king of Israel says. He takes the army, he advances into a difficult spot up against the city. He puts Uriah right at the front. And then he pulls back, and Uriah is killed in battle. And so Joab sends a message back to David. He sends a messenger, and he says, tell him how the battle's going, what's happened, and how we were attacked, and how there was some loss of life. And if David gets upset, say to him then, and Uriah, your servant, is dead. So the messenger comes back to David, and he reports everything. And he says, and Uriah the Hittite is dead. And David says... Go back, tell the troops, do not be discouraged to keep on fighting, for God's will will be done. Bathsheba hears that her husband Uriah is dead, and she mourns. After her days of mourning are complete, David takes Bathsheba as his wife and brings her into the palace. All's good. And then one day, God sends the prophet Nathan to David. Nathan comes into David and he says, 
King David. There was this man. He was very rich. He had tons of cattle, tons of sheep, tons of goats. And he had a neighbor. He was a very poor man. Had very little. In matter of fact, he only had one sheep. He had that sheep. He'd purchased it with his own money and raised it since it was young. It would eat from the table with his family, and he cared for it like one of his children. Well, one day, the rich man, he had a visitor that came, and he was not willing to give up one of his cattle or one of his sheep for this visitor. So he went and he took that single sheep that that poor man had, and he slaughtered it and put it before his visitor. When David heard this, he became furious. He said, how could somebody do such a thing? This man deserves death. He will pay back four times as much as what he has taken from the poor man. And Nathan said, you are that man. Uh-oh. What do you do in a moment like that? You're caught. You're busted. You're red-handed. Your hand is in the cookie jar, and here comes mom in. What do you do? Take it out, but then what? Because <laughs> they caught you. What are you going to do? There's lots of different ways that people respond in those uh-oh moments. Put it back in. We're going to talk about that one because that's coming up. So, okay, so this story is, is so much more funny to me because I know the guy, but laugh if, if you don't get it anyway just to make me feel better, okay? So we got this guy. He was a missionary. He and his wife were missionaries for 28 years in Senegal where we live and work. And uh, Dave is his name. He's from Kentucky, so you got to hear the Kentucky accent and everything that Dave does. And one day, he told me this story, he was, he was traveling and he was going to another country because uh, Senegal borders another country, the Gambia. And so he heads out from his home and he goes and he gets to the border of the Gambia. And as he's entering, he hands the passport to the border patrol people. And they open it up. The problem is it wasn't Dave's passport, it was his wife Linda's passport. And the border patrol guy goes, looks at it, looks at Dave, Looks at it, looks at Dave. He goes, this isn't your passport. And so Dave goes, I know it's not my passport. You don't think that I don't know that that's not my passport? Of course it's not my passport. Look at it. That's not me. That's my wife. Duh. The guy goes, oh, okay. Hands him his passport back and just lets him go right into the country. <laughs> Dude was genius, right? In those uh-oh moments, sometimes we respond with this type of argumentative or defensiveness, right? Your hand's in the cookie jar, you take the hand out, but then you start coming up with a defense, an excuse for it. How about this one? Sometimes when we get caught in those uh-oh moments, we start bargaining. Any parent that's in this room is going to recognize this scenario immediately, right? Child is caught. I promise I won't do it again, never again. You know, just, just don't punish me, and I won't do it ever again. It's not just for parents, though. I think that you can think back into your mind. Have you been in those uh-oh moments, uh moments with God? And you're like, God, if you get me out of this situation, I, I'll start tithing. I'll start laughing at Seth's jokes during his sermon. 
I will not miss a day of church for the rest of my life. Just get me out of this, right? We start bargaining with God about all of it. In this story, in this at-home moment, I mean, this is David. This is King David, right? I mean, think about it. This is the guy who God said is a man after his own heart. This is the guy that the eternal king, the Messiah, is going to come from his lineage? How can it be that this David is the same David that's now caught in this uh uh-oh moment? Open with you, if you will, to Psalm 51. This is a psalm of David. That he writes somewhere in the course of this uh oh moment. Beginning in verse 1 Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned, and have done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, Create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God. God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure... Cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David, the sinner, the liar, the adulterer, the murderer, the man after God's own heart, understood something that is so valuable for each of us to understand. And it comes there in verses 16 and 17. In this uh uh-oh moment, David says, you do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. 
you are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart. Today, as we look at Psalm 51, we are going to try and understand the broken and humbled heart. This heart of a sinner. This is David in this moment, in this uh uh-oh moment, after Nathan, the prophet, comes to him and calls him out for his sin. David demonstrates this broken and humbled heart, and we're going to look at that. What we're going to see today is three stages that are manifested by a true, pure, broken, and humbled heart. Three stages that come about from a broken and humbled heart. Okay? The first stage... Well, so i got to say this first. I've already used this joke a couple times, but bear with me. Not all of you have heard it. Just because... So for those of you that have been to Africa, you know we throw nothing away, right? Like bags are stored like gold and everything like that. So that's exactly what's going on here is I needed a bag and I save all bags and everything like that. So today's sermon is brought to you by Brahms, in case you're wondering. The first stage that we see is that of repentance. David, he comes face to face with his sin with his guilt before God. His repentance begins with an understanding of God and his character. Read with me again verses 1 through 5. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned. And done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. David, he begins by looking at the character of God as this journey to repentance comes in. And so we see here in verse 1, one of the characters of God is God is loving. As a matter of fact, the New Testament affirms this in 1 John chapter 4, where it says clearly, God is love. Let me tell you, that is such good news to know that our God is loving. For those of you that know and those that don't, now you will. Kimberly and I, we work among predominantly Muslim people groups. And so within the Muslim faith, they attribute 99 names to God. If you've ever seen Muslims and they have prayer beads that they run through, there's 99 beads that they run through. And they're reciting the 99 names of God. Do you know what, though? Of those 99 names of God, not a single one of them is love. The Muslim faith is not one that is worshiping a God who loves. And yet, David comes before a God who is loving. This is a pure, this is a true love. A love that loves without conditions. Love is not rooted in feelings. Love is active. And love is at the core of all that God does. When God cares for you, when God cares for me, that comes up out of his love. When God disciplines you, when God disciplines me, 
that comes out of love. Ephesians 5 is just so beautiful because it, it, it helps us to understand all that God is teaching us through the relationships he gives us. He talks about the husband and wife. He talks about the children and the parents, right? As a parent, we come to understand how it is that God can discipline us with love, do you not? When you discipline your child, it's out of love, or at least I hope it is, right? God, when he disciplines us, it's rooted in love. So God, verse 1 says there, is loving. It also says that he is compassionate. When you think of compassion, what do you think of? Okay, we're back to the audience participation point. You guys started off good. I'm, I'm very okay with people interacting. Mercy. Forgiveness. Grace, two on this side, one on this side. You guys got to catch up. What's that? <laughs> I'm good with that. What do you think of when you think of compassion? Sympathy, kindness, great. Not deserved, so given freely. Yeah, mercy, I mean, it's just full of all of our cards. Compassion is full of all those things. Mercy, kindness, sympathy. The awesome part is about God, when he shows compassion, it's not only that he gives it to us because of the misfortunes and the sufferings that we have, but this word, the word compassion, it implies that not only does he show it to us because of what we're experiencing, but he is actually willing to take it upon himself. He doesn't give us compassion just because we're suffering. He gives us compassion, and then he's willing to bear those sufferings with us. So David comes to a God who is compassionate, a God who is willing not to just pity us and look on us with kindness and mercy, but a God who is actually willing to take upon himself that which we are walking through. And then we also see That he is a God who forgives. He is a forgiving God. Throughout the history of Israel, God was constantly forgiving them, right? I mean, you don't have to go any further than the book of Judges to realize that over and over this repetition that takes place within the nation of Israel, this cycle where they sin and God brings his judgment upon them, and they repent, and God forgives them, and they sin, and, they, and he brings his judgment upon them, and they repent, and he forgives them. And this cycle goes on and on. David knows that this is a God who is a forgiving God. And so he calls out to him that he would blot out his rebellion. And then in verse 4, at the end of verse 4, one other characteristic we want to see here of God. It says, so you are right when you pass sentence. And God, God is righteous. To righteous, it means that everything he does is right. Never once does God do something and it's like, eh, should have done that differently, right? I, I can't hardly get out of bed without going, I could have done that differently, especially the older I get. God, he's a righteous God. And it, that righteousness of God is found in his perfection. Everything he does is right. Everything he does is just. 
He does nothing with blame or fault. So it's in light of understanding God's characteristics that we can then come to understand man. Look at verse 5. David says, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. We are all born with a sin nature. This is to say that as descendants of Adam, we are all born with the desire, the ability, and the certainty to sin. Say that again. We're all born with the desire, the ability, and the certainty to sin because of this sin nature that comes to us through our heritage with Adam. And so sometimes people are like, man, it's all Adam's fault. If just we could get rid of Adam, then this world would be so much better. And I'm always like, mm, I don't think so. Because what happened after Adam and Eve? We, we sang about it today, right? We get one generation in to this whole thing called the human race, and what happens? Murder. Right? It wasn't like this progression of sin took place. We went from disobedience to murder in one generation. So if it hadn't been Adam, it would have been Abel. If it hadn't been Abel, it would have been Noah. If it hadn't been Noah, it would have been me. This sin nature is who we are. We are born with it. Verses 3 and 4 then. David says, for I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. You don't have to remind me that I'm a sinner, is what he's saying. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. David seems to substitute here sin and rebellion in this psalm. And I think that's perfect, because that's exactly what sin is. It's a rebellion against God. I recently heard somebody say, you know, the, the root of all of our sin is doubt that God's plan is the best plan for our lives. Think about it. You don't have to look far. Every time that you sin, what is at the core of it? It is this thought that maybe, just maybe, you, little man, know better than him, infinite, omniscient God. God says, do this, and you say, I think this one will work out okay too. That's all sin is, is it's rebellion against the faith, the understanding, the truth that God's plan is better for our lives, for our family, for our community, for our church. So this rebellion is what David identifies is his sin, this rebellion against God. Verse 4, then, has always been a little bit bizarre to me. Look at it. Against you, you alone, have I sinned. I'm always like, really? What about Uriah? What about Bathsheba? What about the armies of Israel? What about your other wives, David? Did you not sin against them? How is this against God, God alone, that you have sinned and done this evil? All right, education time again. Within the Muslim worldview, there are two types of sins. There's sin against God, 
and there's sin against man. So, when you sin against man, what is it that you got to do? You got to go and get the forgiveness of man. When you sin against God, then you have to get the forgiveness of God. So, every year, the Muslims make an annual sacrifice for the forgiveness of their sins. And my phone blows up with messages saying, Oh, God is so good. He has forgiven us of our sins. We have a new life again. Then, anytime somebody is leaving and they think, Oh, I'm not going to see Jeremy for a while, they ask for my forgiveness. What for? I don't know. They don't tell me. They probably don't know. But just in case they have sinned against me, they ask me to forgive them. Because they need forgiveness of man for the sins against man, and they need forgiveness of God for the sins against God. But here's exactly what the Muslims are not understanding, is exactly what David says here, is that all sin is a sin against God. You hear me out? It's not that I haven't offended you when I sinned, but the sin is a sin against God. There's an uh, evangelist, apologist, and he, he talked about this a little bit. He said, when, when thinking about sins against man and then the sins against God, there's this, this battle of, okay, is it really against God or is this just against man, the evil that we do? And so somebody got into a debate with him about whether or not there was a God because how could there be a God if there's evil in the world? Have you heard this one before? Right? I, I can't believe in a God that would allow all this evil. And so this is what he says. I'm just going to read it. This is a quote because it's just so good. When you say there is too much evil in the world, you assume there's good. When you assume there is good, you assume there's such a thing as a moral law on the basis of which to differentiate between good and evil. But if you assume a moral law, you must posit a moral law giver. So within the question itself, how could there be a loving God who allows evil in the world? You're already distinguishing between good and evil. Okay, what's your definition of good and evil? Because I live in a, in a region of the world where to kill certain people groups is considered good. Does that work for you? Other parts of the world, they care for their neighbors and that is good. Other parts of the world, they eat their neighbors. Which one are we going with here, people? If there is such a thing as good and there is such a thing as evil, where does the source of that come from? It comes from a moral law. But where then does that moral law come from? But a moral law giver. So when we trace all of this back, good, evil, right, wrong, sin, righteousness, it takes us back to a moral lawgiver who is God. So that then when we sin, when we rebel, our rebellion, our sin is against that moral lawgiver who David recognizes as his Lord, God. He is the righteous one, and he is the one who is determined right and wrong. So when David says, against you and you alone have I sinned, he recognizes that the evil, the wickedness, the sin that he has done has been in violation of the righteousness 
and the standard of God. Verse 6. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Verse 6 shows us that we, therefore, should submit to the righteous standard set forth by God. God has established what is right and what is wrong, and therefore we are called by God to submit to that righteous standard. It's not comprised of an outward appearance, David is saying here. It is an inward change. It is something that is different within us. It's not just this outward exposure. It's a change of heart. We're going to talk about that change of heart here in a minute. So be ready for that one. It's good. The problem, though, and what David recognizes in this moment is that it's because of his sin nature, because of your sin nature, because of my sin nature, we have violated the standard that God has set for us. I mean, this is exactly what Jesus was teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, when you look after a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with with her in your heart. He was speaking to a people that was so focused on their outward appearance that they missed the inward change that was necessary to hold to that righteous standard that God has set before us. And it's because of our violation of this godly standard, because of our sin, that something is required. And what David understood, as we read in verse 16, is this something that's required is not a sacrifice. God is not asking for this sacrifice that you and I make, right? It's where we get into the bargaining. God, if you get me out of this, I promise I'll never do it again, or I promise I'll give 11% in my tithe this month. God's like, you don't have the sacrifice that's sufficient. God is asking for something more, and David understands that. So it's through repentance then that God leads us to restoration. Through repentance that we come to restoration with God. Verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. The restoration that we find in God brings about two key changes. Take note of this. First, we see in verse 8 that this restoration that God gives us, it returns us back to what God created us for. When we repent, it brings about this restoration which then returns us back to what God created us for. Worship, joy, delight, abundant life. Note that, I mean, all of these things, excuse me, (coughs) all of these things are things that people are already looking for. You don't have to go far in this world to find everybody searching for that abundant life for that delight, for that joy. God has created us for that. 
And yet when we go and look for it, apart from a relationship with God, we never find it. It never satisfies. The second thing that we see in verse 9 is that God, through this restoration, we receive the forgiveness of sins. Turn your face away from my sins and blot out my guilt. He says, turn away. This is to not remember anymore. The common phrase that seems to be circulating over the last four or five years that says, forgiven but not forgotten. Right? We're going to forgive, we're going to move on, but we're never going to forget it. We're going to hold on to that memory. It's amazing when God brings forgiveness to you and to me. He says, no, it's forgotten. He said, well, what about that? I, I don't remember that. It's gone. Why? Second part, he says, because it's blot, blot out. It's not just covered up. There's verses written under this carpet, isn't there? If I'm remembering right. You're so divine. Um, I think so, if I remember correctly, when you guys got this building. So that just popped into my head. Maybe I'm wrong. Can we pull it up really quick and check? Okay. I'm pretty sure. But this, isn't, this blot out isn't just to cover things up. It's saying they're wiped away. They're gone. There is not even a trace of it anymore. You get your CSI uh, black light out, you know, to look for the evidence that's left over. There's nothing there. It's been wiped away completely clean. That's what God does when he forgives our sins. Not only does he forget them, but there is no trace, no evidence of them that is left. And that is exactly what David is saying here. Forgiveness that he brings with th- through this restoration. Okay, so David, Old Testament stuff here. He had the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. Okay? This is not something that occurred with everybody in the Old Testament. Do you understand that? Right? Acts chapter 2, we read today, right? And the Holy Spirit comes upon the people. That's what preceded that verse 42. The Holy Spirit came upon the people, and everybody that believed in Christ was filled with the Holy Spirit. That's not the way things were in the Old Testament. It was something that they were looking forward to. But there were those that the Holy Spirit dwelled upon. And David, as a prophet, as one who was anointed, had the Holy Spirit with him. And so in this moment, he says something that, I'm going to be honest with you, I don't know that he fully understood at this time. (coughs) It's what we would call a prophecy that's coming through the prophet David. Look at it, verse 10. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. David's prayer in this psalm goes beyond forgiveness and restoration in his relationship with God. He actually prays for something more. He prays for something new to be done in his life. And this something new has eternal significance. And this prayer, it's ultimately answered through the new covenant. Okay, flip with me over to Ezekiel. Ezekiel, chapter 36. Excuse me. Mm-hmm. So you got to see this. Ezekiel 
Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. This is God's word through the prophet Ezekiel to his people. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. The Old Testament is pointing forward over and over. The terminology within the Old Testament is talking about this new covenant that's going to come. And God says, here's what I'm going to do in the lives of all those who are mine. I'm going to replace that heart of stone that's within you, that heart that is hard. I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh, one that is new. Not going to change it. It's going to be a new heart, complete transplant. This heart of stone was a hard heart. Ten Commandments, what were they written on, kids? Wake up. Stone. I like you. Heart of stone was rooted in these commandments that none of us could keep. Do we need to go over the Ten Commandments really quick to make sure we all understand that you can't keep them? Or are we, are we all in agreement? Okay. All right. I figured we were, but just in case, we can go. That heart of stone, those commandments, that law, you can't do it. I can't do it. But God said, here's what I'm going to do. This new covenant's going to come, and I'm going to give you a new heart, not one of stone, but one of flesh, one that is sincere, that is genuine, that is sensitive to what I call you to. It is this new covenant that David is asking for, that gives him a new heart, a heart of flesh, that then also brings that gift of the Spirit. Verse uh, <coughs> excuse me, 26, translators oftentimes will put the Spirit there as a lowercase s. You see that? That's yours and my Spirit, that essence of who we are. But then you come to verse 27, most of the time, we're going to put a capital S. Why? Because we're talking about the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Trinity that will come and dwell in our lives. Praise God, that day has come. The new covenant has come. It has come through Jesus Christ. So David is asking here through this rest, rest, restoration, this prophetic statement that God, will you give me a new heart? Will you put your spirit within me and give me a new spirit? And then verses 11 and 12, back in uh, Psalm 51. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. This restoration that God brings into our lives, the life of the one who has a broken and humbled heart, this restoration, he says, it gives us the right to dwell with God eternally. Do not banish me from your presence. It also gives us a change of heart to desire what God desires. That change of heart there. Psalm 37.4. You know that one? Delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Okay, so I'm, I'm very analytical in my thinking. I'm an accountant by training. So that means I have nothing on the right side of my brain. Everything is over here. That's just how I think. And I've always looked at that verse and I'm like, that's so circular. If you know circular thinking. 
delight in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I'm like, well, yeah, of course, right? It's like turn left and you'll be going that way. Well, of course, because I turned left. Turn four times, you're going to be going in the same direction you were before. Well, yeah, duh. No, what God is saying here is when we delight in the Lord, he opens us up to find delight in the things that delight him. Going back to that rebellion, right? What is the greatest plan for your life? It is the one that the omniscient, omnipotent God has established. And so God, he does this in our lives through this new covenant, through this restoration, that we suddenly have a heart that is desiring the things that God desires. So what David has shown us in his psalm, in this uh-oh moment, is that through repentance, God brings about restoration. Okay, will you close your eyes, please? No, this isn't an invitation. We're not done. Don't pack your Bible up. As we've considered the uh uh-oh moment of David, with your eyes closed, I want you to be thinking about that sin that's within your life, that rebellion against God, that absence of desiring the things that God desires. And there you stand before a righteous God. He's perfect. He's holy. He's without fault. And he's seated on the judgment seat. And as he looks at you, covered in your sin, covered in your faults, covered in your weakness, He is preparing to bring his judgment upon you. Perfect God, imperfect you. And yet Jesus, at the moment of judgment, stands in front and blocks you from God. There's nothing that can get around him to reach you because he now stands between you and the judgment seat. How does that make you feel? Does that bring joy into your heart? Does that make you want to worship? Does that make you want to celebrate? But now... What's he doing? Jesus is taking one step to the right, another step to the right, and yet another. And now there you are again, completely exposed to that righteous and holy God and his judgment seat as you carry all of that sin from your life. You can open your eyes. How did that feel? That moment of relief, of satisfaction, of fulfillment, because Jesus is going to take from you the thing that you had nothing, you could do nothing with but accept the judgment of God. 
but then he steps aside and exposes you fully and completely to the judgment of God. Why? Because you deserve it. I deserve it. And he is removing his forgiveness from you and leaving you there before a righteous and holy God. That's a terrible feeling. I hope for anybody that's here today and you've experienced the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ that you would recognize how terrible of a feeling that is. And then stop and think about the billions around the world who sit in that very position right now. That was with a B, not an M. Billions around the world who are standing before a God who is righteous and prepared to receive the judgment that he will bring because of their sin. And there is no Jesus to stand between them and him because they have yet to hear about him. They have yet to know that through faith in him, he can take the punishment that they deserve. The, the Fulani shepherds and herdsmen of West Africa, from the time they're three, four years old, they're out there in the fields walking with the goats, walking with the sheep, walking with the camels. That's their life. They camp out under the stars. Their feet are dirty. Every so often they kill one of the sheep so they got something to eat for the next week. Their neighbors all around them hate them because they're the shepherds. And the shepherds have the animals that eat the crops. They hate them. The Fulani, they're proud because they are the ones they claim that brought Islam to West Africa. They hate them. Many of the jihadist terrorist groups throughout the region have a strong presence of these Fulani people. Their neighbors, they hate them. To the point, to the point that the Christians in West Africa will not go and share the gospel with them because they don't think they're worthy to hear it. But yet they need it. They need to hear it. Otherwise, they do not have that opportunity to be removed from out from under the judgment of God and find the forgiveness that you and I have found in Jesus Christ. And yet, what do we do? What do we do? The third thing that David shows us in his psalm is that proclamation that comes, that repentance that leads to restoration, that leads to proclamation. Look at verse 13 in Psalm 51. He says, I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You and I, we have this good news, so well named. That forgiveness is available. But as David says in verse 13, we have to go. We have to teach this to others so that they can know. Paul says in Romans 10 that how will they know unless they hear? How will they hear unless they preach? How will they preach unless somebody sends them? As it is written, how, good, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. 
We have this proclamation to go and preach forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ and Him alone. This is a message that has to be taught so that it can be understood. It's not within us on its own. We have to teach the Word. We have to teach this truth. Why does my family live in West Africa for almost 18 years now? Because that's the only way that somebody's going to hear is if I go and tell them. If I don't tell them, who is going to? Verse 14 says that we will worship and my tongue will sing your righteousness. Right? This is a precursor to heaven. The worship, the celebration of God. I'm not lying. I mean, like we've, been, we've had that privilege. Kimberly and I have had that privilege of walking into places and knowing that Jesus has never been worshipped in that location before. 2,000 years, not a single time has somebody stepped into this village and sung praises to the name of Jesus, prayed in the name of Jesus, worshipped Him. And when we had that privilege, living in a village, raising Abigail, when she was, now she's here, um, we're like, wow, God, you're letting us be the first ones to praise your son in this location? It's overwhelming. We worship him just as we will in all eternity. In verse 15, Lord, open my lips, my mouth will declare your praises. We get to declare his greatness. In my opinion, the most beautiful paragraph written outside of the Bible comes from a uh, pastor theologian, John Piper, who probably many of you know. He writes this paragraph that I consider just the most beautiful. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. David says, Lord, with this repentance that brings about restoration, I will open my lips, my mouth will declare your praises because that's what this is all about, worshiping you. Quick, I'm running out of time. 1 Corinthians. Hurry, hurry, hurry. 1 Corinthians 14. Billy said I got 25 minutes, so I think we're at 24. We're good. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 24. This is such a cool verse. Okay, we've been talking about spiritual gifts and everything like that, right? We came out of first chapter 13, love. We're going to talk about superiority of gifts and everything like that in verse 14. And then he comes to verse 24. He's, he's continuing this discussion, but look at the end of it. But if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or outsider comes in, he is convicted by all and is called to account by all. Paul's talking about in the church. He's saying when worship is taking place, when prophesying is taking place, we are doing it for the building up of the body. He says, but the unbeliever comes in and they hear this and they are convicted. Can I tell you, it's the truth. There are times when people are gathered together in worship and the unbeliever comes in and the weight of the worship that there is a God who is deserving of all this worship 
dawns upon them and they fall on their face. Not because they have believed, but because of the worship that is taking place and that God that they are worshiping. That's what David says here, is that we, he will open his lips and he will worship and he will praise him. He will declare the glories of God. All right. I need a helper. Somebody under five foot. All right, come on. You, one of you back there. Whoever stands up first. All right, come on up here. Because my last thing is really small. All right, we're going to see how good you are at, at knowing stuff. Let's see. I got to have somebody up here with eyes because if I hold this up, nobody can read it, especially everybody out there. All right, do you know what this is? Not yet? Okay, that's cool. You want to try? Sure. Come on. Thank you for your help. We're going to see. This is, this is what's so interesting. See, it's paper. It's not digital. Do you know what this is? A what? A Monopoly card. Which one in particular? To get out of jail. Get out of jail. Free. Free. So what do you use this get out of jail free card for? Uh-huh. And what do you do? You got to go out. You put that down and you get to go out of jail, right? Uh-huh. Do you got to pay anything? No. Do you have to do anything? Yeah. What? Get out. Just get out. That's all you got to do. Put that card down right up here. Good job. My fear was like board games are dying. And so I was like, oh, nobody's going to know what this is. It's a get out of jail free card. At the beginning, I said to you, when you get into those uh-oh moments, there are those that become argumentative right? And, or maybe there's those who will do things like the bargaining. Get me out of this. I'll never do it again. There's a third one in those uh-oh moments, and it's the get out of jail free card. Where we're like, I got Jesus. There's my get out of jail free card. Everything's good. Pulled over by the cops. I know Jesus. Let me go. Get in trouble with the wife. Not that I've ever done that. Jesus has got me covered. I'm all good. I'm just going to play my get-out-of-jail-free card. A broken and humbled heart that David is calling us to is not like a get-out-of-jail-free card. There's something different that goes on. And this is what I want you to see. Repentance, restoration, proclamation. They're like dominoes. With that repentance, there comes this restoration. Ah. Repentance before a holy and righteous God leads to restoration in our relationship with God. But that restoration, when it's real, when it's genuine, what happens? Proclamation. Cardinals fan here, if they'd won last night, I'd have had no trouble telling you about how they won. Right? It, it's, it's no burden to me to mention they didn't win. That really stinks, right? But it'd be no burden to me whatsoever to mention that the Cardinals won last night. 
I have no trouble mentioning that Billy and I, a couple years ago, went to a Kansas City-San Francisco game, and you know who won? It wasn't San Francisco. Um, It's no burden whatsoever. What does a broken and humble heart look like? It's one that comes before God in repentance. And that repentance leads to restoration. And that restoration to proclamation. As you walk this life, as you walk this journey, as you're growing in your relationship with the Lord, and those sins come, and there's that time of repentance, and you're asking yourself, am I truly broken over this sin? Am I truly repenting before my Lord and Savior? I encourage you to think back to Psalm 51. Now, repentance to restoration in relationship, to proclamation of what an awesome God we serve. Let's pray.